episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by SEM Rush. It is our go-to SEO tool for doing audits, for tracking position and ranking, for really getting ideas on how to get more organic traffic for our clients, competitive intelligence, backlinks, and things like that. All the important SEO tools that you need for paid traffic, social media, PR, and of course, SEO. Check it out at semrush.com forward slash partner forward slash duct tape marketing. And we'll have that in the show notes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Chance and my guest today is Jules Pierre. She is the co-founder and CEO of The Grommet and author of How We Make Stuff Now. So Jules, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. So, so maybe not everybody has heard of The Grommet. So let's Start there. Explain what the grommet is and maybe more importantly, why why you thought the world needed it. Sure. So every day at 10 a.m. Eastern, we launch and reveal the story of one innovative manufactured product from a small business. And along the way, we've launched some products that definitely have become household names like Fitbit and SodaStream, OtterBox, Swell Water Bottles. Um, and the reason we founded the company was that as retail got bigger and bigger, it was becoming increasingly difficult for small companies to break in. And at the same time, technologies, even the internet alone, were making it possible for better products than ever to get created from small companies. So there was a misfit in the market and a big opportunity. Yeah. So, so tell me this. Do do you actually? I mean, are these companies already in business, kind of trying to find their way, and you find them and give them a lift, or do you actually somehow partner a little deeper than that? It's all over the map, but we look at three hundred products a week. Some are inbound. Most um, are about to be in production, or in production, or just out of crowdfunding. So, so with a name like duct tape marketing, I get I get asked this question all the time. Is there a name story? I mean, why why the grommet? Yeah. Um, three reasons. First of all, the, the silly one is I love grommets. I love hardware. Um, but I would say the 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 like more businessy reasons, and because that's important too, is um, first of all, I, I'm pretty good at building brands, and I think we could give definition to this word. It was a word that was easy to say, but a lot of people had no, you know, didn't know what it meant, and I kind of like that. But um, for the second reason was that if people did know what it means that it's a you know a piece of hardware like a tent on a tarp uh or a tent the uh the round silver thing um it would be like a wink to them because that would be people who might understand um you know products and creating products and the third reason is um that specific piece of hardware is like a humble hardworking um entity and that's how i kind of saw our company that we would be kind of surrounding these embryonic companies and protecting and helping them yeah i fall into the wink camp because i'm i'm doing this call at about nine thousand feet in in uh, the colorado rockies and uh, camping and and tarps and all those kinds of things are really important to our uh, livelihood oh for sure yeah so yeah I, I, i'm very happy to have the wink person on on the other end of the line. You know, the, the the term maker now is kind of seems like it's carved out its own space in, you know, business lexicon. H- how, in your opinion, is somebody who claims to be a maker different than somebody who claims to be an entrepreneur or a business owner? Well, first of all, 135 million Americans claim to be a maker, and they're not all entrepreneurs. 
So, you know, clearly it's a broad spectrum from people who are, are, you know, doing hobby projects in their garage to people who are going all the way through to becoming what we call a grommet. And it was a word, honestly, it's interesting you point out that it entered the lexicon because when we started the business 10 years ago, I was struggling to find a word to describe these companies because brand didn't cover it, manufacturer didn't cover it, inventor didn't cover it, entrepreneur didn't cover it. Sure as heck wasn't going to call people vendors. So we were like sort of dancing around the word. We called them partners, but that's kind of vague. And then this word um, started emerging and I watched it and waited to make sure it stuck and also that it was broader than craft or hobby. And it's even brought in now to be descriptive of software entrepreneurs, like people who make things. Um, but for the most part, it works for us. There are, I will say there are some grommet um makers who wouldn't identify with the word because it sounds too crafty to them if they produce a tech product. But I can tell you, I've, sw- I've been swimming in these seas for 10 years. I haven't seen a better word. I, I do like the word. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it, it's like a lot of things, you know, there are maker spaces. I belong to, you know, a maker space where there are, I do it just because I'm trying to make some stuff I want, <laughs> but a lot of people, you know, have businesses that they're running out of those spaces. I don't think it's just become, you know, more acceptable. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like 15 years ago, self-publishing was still seen as kind of a not so, you know, legit way to get a book out there. And of course now it very much is. Right. Exactly. Right. Like people are doing it for themselves and whatever route it is to creating. So do you run across dreamers in this business? (laughs) In other words, Kickstarter's out there. I'm just going to put my thing out there and I'm going to get $15 million because I saw somebody else do it. and, And it's not that hard. Well, a dreamer who stays at the dreamer level won't succeed. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with starting with a dream, but the tenacity and stick-to-itiveness and just the sheer organization it takes to run a Kickstarter campaign would quickly weed those folks out. They they wouldn't, wouldn't see things through to the end of a successful campaign. And yeah, we do see people who maybe don't understand what we do, which is really the spotlight and amplification and they'll send us a concept and think we will build the business around it. And, you know, that's just a misunderstanding, but um, not everyone wants to do the work and it's a heck of a lot of work. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, a core reason why I wrote the book to help people do the work. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I should backtrack. I mean, you have to start as a dreamer or nothing's going to, uh, you know, come of it. But, but obviously, like you said, it's then the implementation that, that is really what kind of differentiates. That 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration is absolutely true. So we sort of waded into this already. What are some of the common mistakes that you see this group of makers falling for? So glad you asked me that because whether or not someone reads a book, I want to head off the biggest mistakes. And the first one would be not assessing the market opportunity right up front. Really doing everything you can to shape and um, quantify the potential customers for your product. And not, you know, getting beyond talking to your friends and family who will all tell you, you know, your product's a great idea. You want to find strangers who, you know, hard, cold, you know, in the hard, cold light of day will um, be able to embrace your idea or data that shows the market for your idea. So um, I would start there because it's heartbreaking to me when people go after a very, if they want a full-time endeavor, if they're not looking for a, for a um, a moonlight sort of side gig. Um, if they really want to build a business, I, I like them to go after a big target so that they can have lots of shots on goal. Name the company after your vision, not your first pro- 
Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I, even in working with established companies on their marketing, you know, the, the first thing I'm going to know is what problem do they solve? And I think sometimes that's a really good place to start for a product, isn't it? Yeah. And keep yourself really honest there. Sometimes it's hard to find the data. So you can't always satisfy that itch. And it's one you should try. Um, there is obviously a ton of data out there about just about any population or market. But sometimes when you're on something super new, it's hard to find that, that data. But then you do your best to um, to substitute that with your own legwork uh, to, to satisfy yourself. It's worth worth pursuing. Yeah, and some of the biggest hits have been people that created something that, you know, solved a problem people didn't know they had until it was there. Right. Like I would say Fitbit's a pretty good example. Now, there was it was hard to quantify the number of people who would want um, that data on their wrist or in their pocket. Exactly. The prior product would have been a kind of clunky pedometer that had no connectivity to a community or to a manufacturer or to your phone. So it's not a great comp, but it was pretty easy to assume that people are interested in fitness and that steps, if they were captured in a convenient, you know, sort of waterproof, well-priced, you know, good form factor way, that's not a hard leap to assume that that could be interesting. But some products are a harder leap. Well, and, and you know, the many duplicates uh, probably is testament to the popularity of that. Yes. The second area, though, you asked me for, like, you know, thing to avoid. Name your company after your vision, not your first product. Because retailers like a full line of products and you don't want to limit your own opportunity of your name. So example outside of the product area would be um, TaskRabbit was originally called Run My Errand. And now think people think of TaskRabbit for just about anything, whether it's a handy you know person project or assembling IKEA furniture or picking up dog food, which was the original inspiration. And Run My Errand was way too narrow and it's expensive and hard to change the name when it needed to be changed. Yeah, yeah, good point. So one of the challenges, I suppose, is somebody creates a good product. Maybe they even raise some money um, in, in you know, a Kickstarter kind of way. But distribution is really going to make the difference. Um, you know, I know that distribution, you know, if you created, say, a board game and you couldn't crack the New York, you know, board game buyer, uh, you weren't going to get on the market. What, what, you know, what's the path, best path for that kind of maker for, you know, to circumvent sort of the traditional distribution channels? Well, frankly, that's at the heart of why we started the business because there wasn't really a good path in that um, the traditional channels, by the way, are still powerful. Going to trade shows is still a very credible thing to do. I wouldn't discourage that. People do still engage reps who will um, present your product to retailers where they have a relationship. Um, people still do some traditional trade advertising. Um, but it's the downside of all that is it, it does feel kind of 1970s um, in terms of we live in a digital world and everything I just described and most of it is not virtual. It's, it's showing up. And um, so we try to, crack that in terms of creating that community who would give products the um, audience invisibility and that just simply didn't exist before we started the grommet. I will say um, social media was super important to me in starting the business. At first it was Facebook primarily vehicles to find that audience and today I think um, the closest thing or the, the best route other than um, some of the things I just mentioned would be um, Instagram. Instagram is pretty brilliant for uh, if you can, if you can make the investment, and it's a serious investment in great content and consistency, it's the only thing I've seen that um, 
you know, kind of exists in the grommet sort of universe of doing it for yourself and finding the community directly. It's a sophisticated platform. So, you know, the imagery must be beautiful. The copy, the videos have to be on par with everything else there. But there are breakouts that happen there. And um, certainly with, for anyone with a big budget, you can you can master master Instagram and all the social platforms. But I'm assuming without a big budget, it's going to be more about sweat equity and putting in the time to create great content. But I'm glad you mentioned that, though, because I think a lot of people just, you know, with all these digital channels, the promise is there to reach all these millions of people. But I really think some of the most effective marketing is is figuring out how to integrate maybe some old school with with some new school and not necessarily depend on one or the other. I would I would agree with that. Um, it's still true that, um, for instance, going to trade show, there are a million reasons why it's helpful. There are um, it's not just for finding buyers. They have um, showcases of innovative products and competitions and kind of Shark Tank type environments where you can get a lot of great advice and make great connections. You can walk the booth and not only see competition, but talk to people who maybe are not competitive but have cracked some manufacturing issues or packaging issues that you have ahead of you. So you can get really smart, really fast. So it's, it's, like this, you know, mini university under a, you know, horrible <laughs> convention center roof. Yeah, and that cement floor is no fun either. So you you already mentioned, um, hinted at this idea of, you know, if you're going to play on Instagram, you've got to have beautiful images and content and whatnot. How, how often do people underestimate the role of design in the whole picture? Well, I you know, that's like I'm a hammer and you're a nail asking me that question because I'm a designer. But um, – Here's the deal, like whether you're creating a package or you're creating a product or some piece of uh, marketing communication, it generally costs the same amount of money to produce something bad as something good. Like the, the, the shortcut you take at the front of skipping the pro or skipping the advice you could get from somebody who's, who's done some of this work before is, is, a, is, a, um, a, is a costly skip is, is basically what I'd say. And um, there are very few products that can't benefit from the input a designer, which, you know, they're available at the at the other side of a few keystrokes on the Internet in many cases. Certainly good networking can lead to good designers. So I think it's a super important investment. And um, certainly consumers don't overlook it. This is a key differentiator in products. So I'm not sure um, why people would skip that step. Here's an example where it often gets stepped. Quite often when you're offshoring and producing in another country, there'll be a, um, a proposal from the factory, you know, here's your cost all in. They may offer to design the product and they offer to design the packaging. And quite often the results show that this effort was done by people who don't understand the market you're serving or don't have the commitment that you have to quality or don't even use the language the way you would use it or the materials you would use. And so it feels like you're saving money, right? Have this thing delivered, you know, all the way from wherever. And, um, but it was an expensive $10 sometimes. <laughs> um, I, you know, I always say this, people, listeners have heard this from me before, but, you know, I frequently hear my kids, you know, when they're looking and they're in their 
upper twenties, thirties, and they, you know, they'll, they'll pass a company by. Oh, their website was terrible. The experience was, you know, was not good. The, you know, the design was so old school. I'm not even looking into that company. So I think people, especially when you're just going to, you know, that three, four seconds is all you're getting, you know, it, it makes a difference. That's a good point because that's where um, what you just described, exactly what your kids say is where this phenomenon of the direct to consumer businesses like Warby Parker or Harry's, um, or Casper are winning because those companies understand that from the very first contact, whether it's an Instagram post or a website or a return policy or ability to chat, these are companies that get you, I get you. I, you know, I'm serving what you, you consider to be a modern experience, a customer friendly experience. And, and I suit your aesthetic or your vibe or your, values. Yeah. And that's why story is such a big deal too. It's not just the nice looking website. It's, it's the story too. So speaking of stories, do you have a favorite one you want to share from, from your thousands, I guess now <laughs> from the Grumman? I think, um, one that I, I think sort of sums up the crazy extremes happening in the world that I'm living in with makers is we have a maker who created a product that is called the Neg, and it is a way to, at home, little tiny device about the size of a cup that peels the hard-boiled egg with a, a couple shakes. So it's genius. It really works. And the entrepreneur who created it was a web designer, an entrepreneur who was a web designer consulting firm. And basically, she saw a void in the market and went after it. And so Bonnie, um, who needed to prototype the product. She had developed, she'd figure out how to do this. Essentially. She, she miniaturized what commercial egg peelers do for the home in a non-powered device. And she signed up for a 3d um, printing course at her local library. So Bonnie shows up for this class. Now, Bonnie, you probably are going to be surprised to hear is 76 years old. And she shows up for the class and the instructor walks into the makerspace in the library and the instructor is 11 years old. And therein was born the neg. It's, it's made in Connecticut and a very, very successful product. Thanks to the meeting of those two generations. That is a great story. And I, and I, um, I have to tell you my own little story that I have a, there was a little deli, just kind of a one, two person, um, place that was right around the corner from my office. And they, I love egg salad sandwiches. They made a great egg salad sandwich. And one day she didn't have it anymore. And she said, I just got tired of peeling the eggs. So I need to tell her about it. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. So, uh, Jules, where can people find more about, well, obviously at the Gromit, more about you, but then also uh, how we make stuff now? Actually, we have a website with exactly that title, How We Make Stuff Now, and it um, talks about um, what's in the book. It's, I, I made a video about the book there, but also it is a great place for additional resources. I, I um, list out chapter by chapter um, the references in the book, but I've been adding them every week as I've learned things after the publishing of the book, I'm going to keep that as a living document to help makers. Awesome. Well, Jules, it was really uh, great to hear your story. Great to hear about the book and, and the work that you're doing. I mean, you, it, it must be really gratifying to see some of these folks that are struggling that you've really lifted up. It's, it's, it feels like my life's work and I'm really proud of it. Well, thanks for joining us. Hopefully we'll see you out there on the road. Yes. Thanks, John. 